Hello and welcome to my digital talk. Today I have a very special guest, a colleague and uh, a dear friend, uh, Professor Mikhail Tanhum. Our topic for today's discussion is connectivity geopolitics of the Mediterranean and Africa. Uh, but before we start unpacking this highly interesting and complex uh, uh, topic, I would like to introduce uh, Professor Mikhail Tankum. He teaches international relations and political economy of the Middle East and North Africa at Universidad de Navarra uh, in Spain. He's also senior um, fellow at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy based in Vienna um, and he has uh, several other institutional affiliations. Professor Tanhum researches newly emerging patterns in Middle East and North African commercial connectivity with a special emphasis, emphasis on the gatekeeper nations of Morocco, Algeria and Egypt. He analyzes the nexus of energy, strategic resources, and manufacturing value chain, uh, chains that connect the Middle East with Africa and Europe. Examining the partnerships of the North African nations with the European Union, China, Russia, Turkey, and the Arab Gulf states in the development of the Euro-Africa and Euro-Middle um, East corridors, uh, Professor Tankum assesses the strategic implications of the new connectivity on the evolving security architectures of the Mediterranean basin, North Africa, Sahel, the Horn of Africa, and the wider, the wider Middle East. And these are exactly the topics we want to cover in the next 60-70 minutes. Uh, so, Professor Tanghum, first I would like to start with a question that uh, is linked to uh, the Mediterranean scheme of uh, four key players. Uh, could you outline for us uh, this uh, connectivity geopolitics uh, game in the Mediterranean when it comes to uh, Egypt, Turkey, uh, but also European powers such as France and Italy? Welcome, and the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Valena. First of all, I'd like to say it is a great pleasure for me to be here. Uh, if you've come here because you follow me on Twitter, I advise you to pay attention to AIES. It is one of the best places for geopolitics. It's one of the best places for innovative thinking, for looking at systems, and you are seeing the spirit behind AIES, uh, my uh, very insightful interviewer, uh, Valina Chakarova. So thank you, Valina, and it's a very a pleasure to appear on your show. Um, so as, as many people who follow me or read my uh, materials know, uh, I call the Mediterranean a game of four because one of the things I would like to point to start with is that the Mediterranean basin, the entire Mediterranean basin is a geopolitical regional system. Okay, if you study history, you know that's been true for a long time. But this body of water, people think of it as a divider when it's really a connector and has always been a connector. So, and we're seeing that more again. So the Mediterranean itself is a system, right? That it has the six EU member countries, 
the five countries of North Africa, the and then the countries in the Levant. You know, so three different kind of regional associations, but all one system. And uh, what's very important to understand that this regional system that has its own regional dynamics is also an interregional connector. And that's how we're going to get to the Africa part of our talk. So what do I mean by a game of four? Well, the Mediterranean basin system that I'm talking with you about is dominated by the four largest countries uh, in order of population. That's Egypt, Turkey, France, and Italy. Now, these countries comprise over 50% of the population of the entire Eastern Mediterranean Basin. They have the largest armed forces of all the countries in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, excuse me, in the entire Mediterranean. So what we see is a macro competition between these four. Uh, now, two of them happen to be in the Eastern Mediterranean, Turkey and Egypt. Uh, but what we what we've been seeing uh, until recently, the whole thing is in flux now, is kind of a broad um, alignment of France and Egypt. Now France is the third largest arms supplier to Egypt, and also France is a very close partner to Egypt's Middle East partner, the United Arab Emirates. France has a, a naval base in the United Arab Emirates, so. Um, so Egypt and France close together, both kind of in opposition to Turkey. Since um, the uh, ousting of Mohamed Morsi and the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, short-lived Muslim Brotherhood government that was strongly backed by Turkey and President Erdogan and the election in 2014 with C President Sisi, Egypt and Turkey have uh, been strong rivals uh, and there's been an alignment with France, uh, uh, with Egypt, and you can throw in the United Arab Emirates. And you can see that taking on a hard power aspect in Libya, where Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and France provided military aid to one side of that conflict, and Turkey provided military aid and continues to provide military aid to the other side of that conflict. Italy, um, for the most part, has been kind of... Moved from this, um, but loosely aligned is a strong word, but kind of uh, finding common cause with Turkey. Uh, and I can, that might seem counterintuitive because everyone knows that Italy is the, uh, uh, the big operator of natural gas, uh, both the Zor field in Egypt and then all of Cyprus's natural gas. But e any the company any uh which is under the de facto control of the egyptian government controls 45 percent of each uh libya's oil and natural gas uh and every field every installation except for one fall fell into the gna the tripoli government's territory the government that was backed by turkey so uh, for example all of libya's gas is sold exclusively to italy it's exported exclusively to Italy. Eight percent of Italy's uh, gas demand, or you know, what produces its electricity, uh, comes from Libya. So these are, are, are very vital interests. So, um, and then on the other hand, uh, France and Italy have had their own competition. Uh, what people know is 
now that uh, the UK is, and it's a little more fierce now that the UK is out of the European Union, so there's a post-Brexit element, is that uh, who, what is the relationship between France, Italy, and Germany, this now the engine, supposed engine of the EU, because Italy has its own strategic concept called Il Mediterraneo Allargato, the wider Mediterranean. And we think of Italy as kind of an inept country because it has so many governments. But if you look over the last 20 years, they have implemented this policy quite well. I mean, Italy has um, three foreign policy baskets, a transatlantic basket, a European basket, and a Mediterranean basket. But over the past 20 years, they put almost all of their eggs in the Mediterranean basket, and it paid off big because Italy is now the second largest manufacturer in Europe, second only to Germany. Their sold production exceeds France by a third. So, and how did they do that? Because Italy focused on Mediterranean markets for 20 years. And now they see they wanted been wanting to expand that. And that's why uh, Italy, um, so it's not just Libya, it's a, a broader program that includes Ethiopia, it includes the Sahel. So, um, so it, there's a, a competition between these four, uh, but there are more players in the East Med and in the Western Med. So um, Greece and Israel are the big play, additional players in the Eastern Med so that uh, with the rift between Turkey and Israel, uh, and, and Egypt, uh, excuse me, Cyprus, Israel, Greece formation uh, evolved, and so did in Egypt, Greece, Cyprus formation, and then these two kind of merged. Uh, so, and then France got involved with that, and Italy again is on both sides of this. Uh, but these are. Are, are big countries that can influence the eastern end of that system. On the western end, you have Spain, of course, uh, which has the same GDP as Russia, not to be underestimated. Um, and you have Morocco, the great rising power on the eastern Mediterranean uh, that we will see more and more and more of. So these two countries affect this game and now the competition between uh all of these countries and their alignment is affected by the next thing that you alluded to which is euro africa connectivity so that's why this is mediterranean and africa now i, I want to explain to our audience in uh, two or three statistics why africa is so important from the point of view of europe the middle east Asia, the rest of the world. As you and I are speaking, 42% of all young people in the world live in Africa. So if you think about next 20 years, where the labor markets are, the consumer markets are, that statistic should start to indicate it to you. But let me tell you another one. Uh, by 2025, Africa will have over 100 cities with over a million people each. That's why people say Africa is the new China. 
if you by comparison depending how you define Europe at its maximum Europe has only 15 cities so uh, Africa is rapidly urbanizing uh, there are young markets uh, it still has um, uh, the 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 least expensive land natural resources arable resources labor markets so in fact china has been moving all its factories over india has been moving factories over so no country will be prosperous no country will be a world power no country will even in my opinion be a middle power unless it has a good relationship with africa and where this now comes is the trans-Mediterranean Euro-Africa connections because in the short term Europe is a market so there are three Euro-Africa corridors one that goes through Morocco an Atlantic corridor from Western Africa to Western Europe and I can talk about that I just want to lay out the map for people an Eastern corridor that is you know the massive transshipment port in Greece at Piraeus that's run by China combined with Egypt's massive ports which are expanding also by the way China is the primary uh, player in that they create a north-south corridor that goes all the way to the equator to the Great Lakes region uh, so from East Africa to Eastern Europe from Piraeus you can take freight rail to Austria uh, to Czech Republic to Germany and Poland so and then from there further on and then a middle corridor which is also very interesting through the central Maghreb right now and the gatekeeper there is Algeria but from the trans-african uh, highway the trans-saharan highway uh, you can get from Algeria all the way to Lagos um, and Turkey is the one that's been with Italy have been pioneering the connections I have to explain that's a curious map if you're interested AIS has many on these topics the place where many of this thinking was developed is through the AIS focus report so but that corridor also goes then through Italy's high-speed rail so it can theoretically go from Lagos Nigeria six degrees north latitude on the equator all the way up to Stockholm Helsinki because of the way the European railroads and highway systems go from six degrees to 60 degrees north latitude so we're looking at massive uh, potential movement of markets of commodities of the way production is done and on top of that Africa just launched the African Continental Free Trade Association so even though we think about we talk about Euro-Africa connection China is one of the most interested countries uh, Qatar is an interested country uh, the United Arab Emirates Arabia uh, because it's getting it's in this system um, and uh, right now it's all um, in flux how it's going to be configured and who is gonna who's in the lead and why we can talk about uh, in our uh, in our discussion I'll, I'll let you take it from there yes it's definitely everything is a kind of a geopolitical um, 
flux. Uh, we are observing so many various ad hoc, sometimes ad hoc, sometimes rather traditional uh, actors constellation, constellations based on historical links or uh, geoeconomic interests and sometimes also uh, shared geopolitical agendas. But um, I would like to um, ask a concrete question regarding the role of the European powers and regarding concretely the role of uh, the institutional actor European Union. Do you see a special role uh, for the European Union uh, in this uh, major connectivity corridors? How can they actually not just expand them, not just build them up, expand them, but also uh, guarantee the security? Because we know that markets and business goals where uh, there is uh, security. So obviously, uh, these connectivities uh, have a great potential, but are also facing a lot of security challenges. Uh, and it's also interesting, this is an additional question that comes to my mind. Do you see also in the long term the option that once there is a north-south connectivity from uh, Europe, now take the Mediterranean, pass, uh, uh, the Mediterranean area going to North Africa, do you see in the long term also the optionality for connecting the Arctic with the Central European countries, which is now the so-called Three Seas Initiative, uh, based mm -hmm. also on connectivity with the very same corridors? Is there such option as well? Because mm -hmm. this would be absolutely revolutionary if we look at the way how China and other powers have been actually expanding horizontally their geostrategic projects such as the Belgium. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. There's a lot there's a lot on the table. Uh, what I want to say if it wasn't clear is um, there's not only the north south connections. It where the future of the game is also is the south south connections. Um, so it, if we're speaking about I'm going to try to answer your questions in order, but I want to add this element. So when you're thinking about African countries, there's the African country that has obviously its natural resources and its affordable human resource, affordable labor that's attracted. So there's one thing about like any country that it has comparative advantage. But then um, in these corridors, there's Africa as a producer with the end market as Europe. Uh, and that's right now, especially what's happening is we're seeing nearshoring. Um, we're seeing the shortening of supply chains. Uh, and this is another reason why to reach the African markets, a different aspect of security to reach European markets. So second is Europe as the end market. But third, with the African Continental Free Trade uh, Agreement, is Africa as the end market or also uh, Middle East countries. So it's those three uh, that are on the table and, and, and who, it, who is going to get in. But I wanna concretize, before I get to the European Union, I wanna concretize what I mean. Because the bottom line is whoever creates manufacturing production, value added production in Africa will win. That's the bottom line. If you didn't, if you, if you wanted to just turn off, I don't recommend it. Turn off your computer now and go home. 
that's the only thing you need to remember so let me let me illustrate this morocco is a great success story and here is because morocco and france had built the first high-speed railroad in africa the al Barak line the the first segment of that line was inaugurated 2018 it cost 2.3 billion dollars it, it's connected to the Tangier port, Tangier Med, which is on the Mediterranean, 40 kilometers east of Tangier. And Morocco has now surpassed Spain as the country with the highest port capacity on the Mediterranean. But infrastructure is not enough. This is where European Union, even China has failed. Infrastructure is not enough. It is production. So what happens is you need the infrastructure, but you need the production, you need anchored in that infrastructure. So what you have is Renault, Europe's third largest car maker, uh, sends six train loads every day of Renault cars to that Tangier Med port by that high-speed railroad. PSA, Group PSA, the, the second largest auto manufacturer has now opened plant in Kenitra because of the high-speed railroad the rail connection so Morocco sends 700,000 cars a year to the world mostly to Europe 700,000 in this time period from 2014 that created 28.8 percent of Morocco's employment but it's not just Renault and PSA, there are over 200 international firms located in Morocco to support that, to supply it, that creating all kinds of manufacturing. German, French, Belgian, Japanese, Sumitomo is there. Um, now, it's a value chain where the end market now is um, in Europe, but it is so powerful that China had to integrate itself into this value chain. Uh, so CITIC, uh, C-I-T-C, Diecastle, the global leader in aluminum parts, in aluminum cast parts, opened a $400 million plant in Kenitra to supply Group PSA. They can make 6 million aluminum parts. So that's because France and Morocco set up this value chain but you see france this is gets to the european union european union did not partner with france so who have for example that al barak um uh railroad 25 percent of that funding came from gcc states so paris doesn't have a partner in berlin or rome at least they haven't so if there's no partner in Brussels, Berlin, Rome, Madrid, Athens, Paris is going to turn to Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, and uh, Cairo. And so the uh, agenda is going to reflect the common denominator of those four capitals. So the European Union, so this is a way, so that's the game. So whoever sets up these manufacturing value chains will win and morocco before covid 19 was the most advanced i'd argue as a result of covid 19 egypt is 
the Eastern Corridor is going to forge ahead. Um, but different countries are involved in different corridors, and this is what makes it interesting. The European Union, unfortunately, Europe will be eaten, European countries will be eaten individually if they don't stick together. Either they will just lose, or a country like France will just work with uh, uh, you know, non-union member countries, the same with Italy. We've seen this in Italy-Turkey cooperation. Uh, where, you know, um, Europe, the European Commission in 2020, March, in the middle of COVID, uh, issued its reset strategy, a new comprehensive strategy for engagement with Africa, with five, based on a framework of five partnerships. Well, that's nice, but if the EU, EU system does not coordinate, uh, this will never happen. And that's where we look at the Mediterranean, back to the great game. There's the, technically the Med 7, uh, because although Portugal doesn't have a uh, Mediterranean coast, it's grouped as the EU South, uh, known as the Med 7. But there are six major EU countries, six EU countries in the Mediterranean, and they are evenly split. France, Cyprus, and Greece on one side, Italy, uh, Malta and Spain on the other. Uh, the EU system needs to get these countries to work together and create win-win situations with the neighborhood. So France and Italy need to stop arguing with each other and work with Greece to create work on this Eastern corridor and work with Egypt. Europe is failing because it has no comprehensive plan for Egypt. France and Italy are falling all over each other to outdo each other in Egypt, even though Italy, for political reasons, it tries to keep it undercover, but they're doing a lot of business there. Um, but they should be coordinated, and it should be, if, e, if the EU had a, a, a coherent policy, then they could bring country like Turkey in as a win-win uh, and reset EU-Turkey relations, reset Greece-Turkey relations as well. But, you know, Italy, uh, during the financial crisis, Greece's financial crisis, treated Greece itself like a colony. Uh, it bought Greece's trans, uh, gas transmission system. It bought its railroad systems. Uh, you know, the TAP pipeline, the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, 65% uh, of that essential pipeline to Europe crosses Greek territory, but Greece doesn't own any part of it. Um, now Greece has come out of its financial doldrums. It's, it's advancing as an innovation economy. It's leading in solar power. It's working very well with Germany on green energy transition, uh, highly dynamic. Well, Italy now has to give Greece more parity. France has to give Italy more parity in their relationship. Uh, so this is where I see Germany uh, playing a very important role in trying to navigate these, although Germany has its own interests. Um, Spain could also be an interesting mediating country in terms of EU politics, although the Morocco case uh, on the east-western corridor is different because of Spain's relation with Morocco. Um, and uh, Brussels, therefore, 
needs to take a, a important role and the problem there is it is not only the public sector it needs to be public private partnerships uh, to create a win-win because uh, I, I just published, everyone knows, a 32-page report on Turkey in the central Maghreb and, and Africa. And I will talk about that. I just want to introduce it. But Turkey has created production. Turkey is the largest em foreign employer in Algeria. Turkey has created factories in Senegal. Uh, Turkey has created a factory in Cote d'Ivoire. Now, part of it is, you see, everybody thinks that the Chinese is going to win Africa. But we've had 50 years, at least 50 years of African independence, and Africa is still poor. So Europe hasn't worked. But whatever China has done hasn't worked. China was better. Europe came and was all about extraction, security, and extracting value. China created infrastructure but is also extracting value. Whoever is going to win is going to create win-win relationships with African partners. I think it's great that there are so many people because I think Africans should have choices. But Europe needs to create win-win partnerships with African partners that create production and that's win-win in Africa, local production that participates in value chains like we see with Morocco. Uh, you know, Morocco has benefited tremendously uh, from the value chain that was there. Um, so, you know, Turkey is doing very interesting things and it's focused in Francophone West Africa. Why? There is simmering discontent with France in West Africa. And now there is tremendous dissatisfaction with the quality of Chinese goods and what China is doing. So the field is open. So uh, Europe has a window of opportunity. That's a big message. It's not like, uh, first of all, one, it's not the more the merrier. Uh, two, um, Europe has options, but it needs to come up with a, a real plan to create win-win partnerships that create manufacturing. Um, I'll pause and let you take it. And if I don't get to the Arctic by the end, please make sure to ask me again about the Arctic. But before we move to the Arctic, um, I would like to um, to touch upon uh, some of uh, the other major uh, geopolitical actors uh, in this region. So you already elaborated on the potential and the options uh, for European powers and the institutional actor, which is the European Union. But what about uh, the geopolitical and geoeconomic interests of uh, China and Russia? Um, how do you see uh, their role in these regions, particularly in the Mediterranean, but also in now increasingly in the, not just Northern Africa? um specifically when it comes to these uh three corridors but also moving beyond these corridors we know that uh, china but also russia have been um well have been filling the the void and will trying to actually um well uh, establish their own portfolio 
a bit more about um, economics as in the case of China or more about security services as in the case of Russia. So what is your take on, on okay. their role? Yes, okay. So again, uh, I, I'll repeat, I, I'll answer all those questions, but I repeat the ultimate winner will be the country that creates value-added production. Now, um, that's why the short answer, Russia can will be doing a lot of things and have a big impact, but won't win because it's probably the least capable. But to give you an example, Russia is creating one value-added production, uh, uh, important value-added is petrochemicals. Even if we transition to renewable energy, we need oil and gas for petrochemicals until an alternative is, is there. Especially since advanced thermoplastics are supposed to replace metallic parts in electric vehicles and in all kinds of things. So um, Russia, for example, is building a petrochemical plant in Morocco. So we, by doing that, and, and Russia has signed uh, also a defense agreement with Morocco, although the French and U.S. defense relationship is so important. Morocco hasn't pushed it, but is keeping it as an alternative. And of course, Morocco just bought some arms from Turkey, and Morocco is interested in getting Chinese drones also. So, um, you know, these countries have options. Now, uh, so Russia is a very big footprint in what I call the Eastern Corridor. So the one of the parts that Russia is a very important arms supplier to Algeria, but doesn't create much value added. But in Egypt, Russia is not only um, a tremendous military partner, the, the friendship exercise they do every year is enormous. And not only is it arms sales, but uh, I, I think I believe it's still true that um, Russia can use any Egyptian air base on five days notice. Remember that Russia uh, use the Sidi Barani uh, air base, that's the closest air base to, um, to Libya to deploy special forces and drones and all kinds of things. There's Marsa Matruk, the big, the big uh, military base on the Mediterranean and just west, west of that is Sidi Barani. Um, so, but Russia has also invested in Port Said East Port Said Special Economic Zone. So that's where they're going to have more, more legs. Again, whoever invests uh, and creates production. But, you know, Russia it, it has a big footprint um, with Wagner and security. China, if it creates production, will win. So, for example, all these countries, the North African countries are very... Uh, are very well suited for automotive production. Uh, Morocco has, Algeria has had failed attempts. Egypt is reviving in that. So um, electric vehicles are the next big thing. So China has failed to set up an electric vehicle manufacturing line in Morocco so far. A BYD, the company BYD, which is tremendous. So, um, but if they succeed, that changes the game in Morocco. Uh, in Egypt, they are producing electric vehicles. 
they just with Al Nasser, you know, everybody knows uh, the National Egyptian uh, Car Company. They revived it. There's a joint partnership. Uh, they're also producing uh, charging stations. We're using army production. So they can create electrical electric vehicle uh, value chain there. That really puts them in the driver's seat. I mean, because uh, China is building Egypt's high-speed rail north-south. Siemens, Germany has also been very effective. Uh, it's also building a high-speed monorail system. And so, but it also shows the failure of Europe because Europe says, oh, we'll just um, offer regulations and higher standards. So they improve the infrastructure, but then other countries will benefit. Uh, so in, in terms of my, um, uh, in improving, you know, um, Egypt's rail system, Talis has been there, uh, as Siemens already, but Siemens benefited. So, uh, so again, China looks like it's really going to, if it creates that production in the Eastern corridor, they, they will succeed. Uh, and, and it's like, you know, Sudan needs a lot of help. Well, why not produce components in Sudan and be part of that chain? You have the line economies of East Africa. You can create the supply chains all the way through, especially if you think about where the resources, if you're talking about electric vehicles, think about where cobalt comes from. Think about where, um, you know, uh, lithium comes from. You know, if you're thinking about DR Congo. So, um, and then the central corridor, uh, which could change if Libya gets connected. Uh, right now we're talking about either Al going from Tunisia, Turkey's uh, transportation system goes from Turkey to Italy to Taranto, the major port in the Mediterranean, the key strategic deep sea port, then to Tunisia, to Bizet. But China is building um, Hamdania in in Algeria, 6.5 million TEU. That could be the major port. Tunisia will be auxiliary, but that whole system uh, could function in a big Chinese. So the question is, who is going to create production in Algeria? Now, let me show you again EU failure. Algeria, as we know, has a lot of natural gas and oil, but they want to move towards renewables. So they had a program, again, like most of these countries, to shift to renewables. So Italy, the company FEMA, was chosen to lead that effort. Italy has a lot of construction in Algeria. Of course, ENI is big with extraction. So uh, to give you an example, ENI, even though it's, it's totally, you know, uh, the, the largest partner for Algeria in terms of oil and gas, uh, it, doesn't cre it didn't create any... Um, Thermo, any um, petrochemical production. France, Total was the only one. And so Algeria is creating, uh, you know, France is helping to have Algeria have more value added production because pulling oil and gas out of the ground doesn't get you much money. Um, so, and then Italy, uh, again, is supposed to lead the effort, but Italy has not located any solar panel production in Algeria, solar cell production in Algeria. Uh, the only country, European country that has, again, is France. France did a joint venture um, uh, with Sonatrach, Total, uh, 
so um and then you know for that they can then create these solar panels not only for algeria but to sell to north african and sub-saharan african markets great for algeria great for france um but you need mounting systems for these no european company stepped in and built mounting system production the uae key energy or uh, stepped in and they're built a, a production plant in algeria to make mounting systems so again you know that that's that's how how it works so china um now china does have very strong interests uh because there's a lot of minerals they're extracting uh they've created infrastructure for that they do have production in different countries but like i say it's nowhere near dominating the scene although now they have um they have a, a pole position in the in egypt and that uh eastern corridor um but china will be is increasing its military put footprint in africa to protect these interests so um you know like we we see it's not just the it's not the russian army in africa it's wagner and the private military company so one of the new things that's been happening is uh chinese private military companies in africa um so um turkey again as i, I can uh you know turkey um for example very smart they they produce now 2.2 million tons of steel in algeria um then they open the steel plant this tosiala uh tosiala open up a steel plant in senegal right because turkey does a lot of construction uh in africa so now again they 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 um they're there but everybody needs iron so turkey the same company bought uh a, an abandoned steelworks in angola uh, much further south uh in the western you know southwest uh because it has a iron ore mine uh so they revived they weren't so concerned with the steelworks we see they're thinking strategically they revived the iron ore mine they're going to produce 10 million tons of iron ore a year that services uh, senegal that services um algeria and just to get how this works in senegal the turkey just built a huge furniture factory turkey is playing to its sectoral strengths it's building a furniture factory well all these people that are urbanizing in africa local markets they need furniture they need beds they need couches uh sleeping couches these have been the market estimates of what they need so um but the steel for that now can come from senegal itself or algeria uh you know and turkey opened up uh, one of the world's largest textile factories turkey is a world leader in textiles like it's a world leader in steel production so it opened a textile factory in algeria now textiles are a big business italy is the fifth largest textile and apparel producer in the world makes a lot of money so these are big business now turkey opened up textile factory but that textile factory in algeria can now service the furniture company in senegal so we don't see anything uh, like that kind of uh, 
uh, planning. And I, I don't think, you know, they necessarily have a, a communist five-year plan. It's very opportunistic. There's an orientation. Uh, and then finding opportunities. But Europe doesn't have a concept. And so far, China hasn't emphasized production. They, they do production in some places, textile production in East Africa. Uh, but like I say, the game is open. Um, you talk a lot about 5G. Uh, Europe invented 2G, right? It used to be called GSM, right? Um, and it dominated the entire market. China went in and started to build 3G in Africa. So now China has 65% of the telecoms market in Africa. But now we have the transition of 5G. So who who's going to be involved with that? Um, and who's going to partner with African countries? There's a lot of... And then there you mentioned the issues of security. Well, Senegal uh, decided... They, they need digital sovereignty. They need to protect themselves. So they created a national data center, right? Not to use foreign servers. However, that national data center was built by Huawei with a loan from China. So it's very unclear if it is actually any kind of digital sovereignty at all. Uh, this is where the EU needs to be proactive, offering win-win solutions and the only way that EU can do that is if they coordinate between uh, countries or I would call it coalitions of countries, of relevant countries. It doesn't have to be the whole EU, um, you know, and the private firms uh, that are working and doing that are relevant for, you know, solar, hydrogen, uh, EVs, electric batteries, what. Where, wherever Europe has a comparative advantage, and this should be true of any country, but unfortunately, you know, uh, the European Union doesn't act as a, as a coherent organism. Um, and, you know, uh, so I'll let you go jump in. Yeah. Well, obviously, um uh, the, the picture that you outlined for us, specifically when it comes to the role of uh, the European Union and the European powers, is one that is very much based on fragmentation lines. And due to the fact that these fluid constellations between various actors um, will further increase. Uh, there will be rising regional powers or middle powers. There will be also uh globally oriented actors trying also to set a foot there um so do you see the trend when it comes to the european role uh more in the direction of further fragmentation lines along the role of external actors uh based on these conflictual interests even as you perfectly outlined it between the key european powers that actually set the uh, agenda or show the direction right because there is a kind of dichotomy on the one side we have also smaller member states such as the case with greece or cyprus that also have a saying that also have actually witnessed a lot a lot of tensions 
uh, in the Mediterranean and are witnessing such tensions. But then again, the agenda is often being set by by the big powers, by the you know by the engine forces behind the European project. So, do you see that this kind of dichotomy will lead to further fragmentation, or what is the exit? out of this fragmentation, how can actually the positions of uh, European powers such as France and Italy uh, merge or get closer because obviously this kind of bifurcation in their positions also leads to further mm -hmm. tensions and bef before they, these, these tensions are not removed, there will be kind of parallel, parallel projects, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, so you ask an excellent question, as to be expected. Uh, always very insightful in the way you ask and frame things. Um, absolutely correct. Um, so, for example, uh, I talked about the six med countries divided 3-3 three, three in the Mediterranean. So Malta flipped, right? Malta, a tiny little country, uh, it flipped. And why? Because it suffers big problems with illegal trafficking, not just uh, migration, but all kinds of illicit trafficking. And you know, if you're not aware of the country of Malta, it is very where it's located. It's very close to Libya. Uh, it's close to Libya and close to Tunisia. So, um, so you know, who's the main security provider once? Uh, December, what was it, December 19th, the GNA, Tripoli, Ankara Accord was activated and and then in, in five months' time, Turkey reversed the course of the Libyan war and now is in, has a strong military presence at the Watiya Air Force Base, that's 27 miles, 27 kilometers from, from the Tunisian border, their naval presence in Misrata, um, they're training the Coast Guard. This so Malta had a meeting with uh, defense apparatus in Turkey, defense apparatus in uh, Libya, and signed a tripartite deal for their own security interests, quite understandably. And that's when Malta pulled out of Operation Irini, that was supposed to enforce the EU enforce the embargo. Well, there's a clear example of a delivery deficit of the European Union. Right, nobody is going to help Malta. Was it? And and the biggest trade partners of Malta are Italy and the UK. And Italy didn't do anything. I guarantee you, the UK is going to increase its role with Malta. So post Brexit, UK, if you think about Gibraltar, Malta, and Cyprus, where they're all, you know, UK all has military positions. Uh, you're going to see UK work more, uh, you know, what's the UK work more with Turkey? You're going to see, uh, so that's again the arrogance, you know, of the European Union if they try to punish the UK because if they don't work with the UK. The UK uh, will be a, a powerful force, work with the US. UK will work with Morocco and again, change uh, dynamics. Um, France and Italy, very interesting. If you remember, uh, not this summer, but the previous summer, there was the Med7 conference. It was held uh, uh, in France, uh, Corsica, I think. Um, and Macron gave a big speech about Pax Mediterranea, 
that the EU med countries should band together uh, and um, and this is kind of what we're talking about because the, the EU can't have a policy if the six med countries are divided so um, now that all depends about France and Italy uh, coming to terms and one of the interesting things you see there there's been a trend over the decade of French and Italian firms merging um, if you think of certain energy firms if you um, uh, you know there have been uh, production um, military production all kinds of things so uh, that that is a positive trend total and any so for example uh, Turkey uh, you know was kind of was feeling that there was a policy of um, containment in the East Med all these countries were aligned it's at uh, NATO allies EU partners uh, and in 2018 when Cyprus discovered its second well that made it a, a gas player um, any founded and was sending another drill ship and and Turkey was very displeased that all of this was moving forward and feeling quite helpless so that second drill ship uh, faced the Turkish naval blockade that was the beginning of Turkey's coercive diplomacy in the eastern Mediterranean uh, since then they they have sent uh, exploration ships uh, into uh, Cypriot waters each exploration ship has a naval escort and then ultimately summer 2020 they upped the ante and did it in waters claimed by Greece and that led to this um, big clash uh, but people were surprised none of us at AIS because we've been following this closely but suddenly at the height of that conflict Egypt sent its Navy to do uh, to Greece to do exercises and the United Arab Emirates concurrently sent its air force to do joint air exercises over the battle space and people in Europe were surprised now I had been writing about UAE doing joint exercises with Greece since 2017 in fact in 2017 is when they started to do them in public and with the Israeli Air Force in Greece so nobody should have been surprised by the North so that goes to my point um, you're asking a question as if Europe European policymakers have knowledge they're asleep at the wheel a lot of them not all of them certainly the heads of companies know more about what's going on but European capitals the are uh, are just waking up to a lot of this and the European Union itself so um, it, they have to see the strategic picture you know I I, I, I the first place I published the statistics about uh, Morocco's port capacity was a report with AIES and very few people in Spain knew that Morocco had surpassed um, uh, Spain in port capacity even when you know they read it in that when that that report so I think a first step is Europe policymakers and all the European capitals need to see this picture also policymakers in Brussels then they have to decide because I I, I talked about uh, you know this Eastern 
corridor. Well, that goes right into the Three Seas Initiative. That goes Poland. Poland really, you know, Poland just signed an agreement with Egypt. So Poland is, again, you know, starting to wake up, not rely on things. Poland is the second largest furniture manufacturer in the world. So if Turkey can open a furniture manufacturing facility in, in Africa, why can't? Why can't Poland? And maybe they shouldn't just wait for France for their Africa policy. So um, this is where I think um, countries that might not, uh, I, I think there needs to be um, a much more educated and forthright discussion among European policymakers uh, and private sector people. And private sector people who usually know a little more on what's going on the ground. Uh, this needs to be out there that Europe um, uh, can talk. I think there are ways. Um, I don't think it's um, look. Cyprus's problem is that it's not a NATO member, so it relies on the European Union for its defense. And it, you know, it brought France in. You know, France. Oh, so my point. I wanted to get back to this. So with that naval ship in 2018 any to mitigate its risks brought total right europe's uh third largest company not third largest energy company but third largest company into partnership in all their operations in cyprus so but what people don't know is at the same time in 2018 uh any and total also came to an understanding about operations in algeria uh so it was a broader understanding between these two companies uh and that also then included libya um so what we need to see i think in europe is is uh more of more of this um and um as i again europeans need to understand what is going on and then they need to understand that the only way to win is to make it win-win um you know so far and and whoever is going to be there at the ground floor most african countries the wealthiest african countries you know if you're thinking of nominal gdp uh, like uh, nigeria ghana senegal cote d'ivoire just to name the ones in west africa they're about at the halfway point to the sweet spot where the economy takes off like china's uh, and you could say most of the um, East African countries same way. So whoever is going to be there when these countries become what China became during the 2000s is going to be on the ground floor. And if they're there in a win-win situation, they're, they're, they're going to win. And I should say it is not just Europe, Turkey, Russia, and China, GCC countries are very heavily involved okay um and egypt itself is involved so egypt is both a gateway but it's also an actor egypt is an interesting hybrid country in many regards um but for example i talked about turkish steel in in algeria well uh qatar steel has created you know algerian qatar steel international uh, aqi uh and produces so qatar and and turkey dominate the algerian steel market tunisia qatar is the second largest 
investor in Tunisia is leapfrogged ahead of Germany and Italy. So, and then of course, Qatar is heavily involved in Libya. On the other hand, you have UAE, Saudi Arabia, heavily involved with Morocco. Even during the Qatar blockade, when Morocco's position was a little ambivalent from UAE's point of view, UAE did not drop its investments uh, because it's so strategic. And France, uh, excuse me, not France, Spain and Germany are, this year have woken up to the fact they can't treat Morocco as, as the kid at the kids' table anymore uh, because Morocco is such a strong and rising power. And, and there needs to be um, this kind of, a, a much different strategy. And, and the as I said, it's a European uh, perspective. So France, Italy, Spain definitely should be working together uh, in the Western Corridor and in the Central Corridor. Uh, Greece could even do interesting things in Libya, even doing things with Turkey. Why not? To reset relations in a different context. Definitely in the Eastern Corridor, Greece is the country to work with. So France and Italy have to work with Greece. Germany has an important role. Netherlands. Netherlands is one of the most uh, biggest exporting countries in Europe. They have an important uh, role with all of this. So... Um, and it really, it, it boils down to vision, knowledge, vision, and leadership. Uh, and so those are the things that are, are not necessarily, you know, the forces that we deal with. These are, in some sense, idiosyncratic things that depend on the actual human beings that are involved. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe a final question on my side. I'm also looking at the chat room and I see that there are a few questions. Maybe we can address one or two questions also from the chat, uh, from the chat room about a final question on my side. Um, I'm sorry for being too, uh, too or European oriented, but of course we are trying also to come up with some ideas about a pragmatic future approach by the European powers and now I hope that this was not uh, the signal for us to end this conversation. I well, very much I, hope I, that I, this was not the case. <laughs> if that is the case, I will speed up, of course. Uh, no, but, no, no, um, no, 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 not at all. No. Okay, but if we look at the map also when it comes to the military footprint of uh, external mm -hmm. powers in Africa, um, well, okay, you have already outlined also about the Mediterranean and we know also that the Mediterranean uh, has been now also witnessing an increased uh, presence by the regional actors, the traditional ones that have been uh, active uh, there for for ages, um, but now we are also observing a kind of uh, projection of uh, power uh, towards Africa. So it's no longer just about the traditional external actors being uh, being present there. Uh, so you've outlined about uh, the North Africa. Then again, when it comes to Europe, it's more or less. Uh, concentrated uh, in um, in uh, the western parts of uh, Africa and then goes along the central uh, Sahel region. Uh, so now why I'm asking this is because we are also observing the trend of increased presence along the east coast of Africa. 
Yes, uh, yes, right? yes. Because now uh, there is this power shift towards the Indo-Pacific. And what I'm observing is that actually European powers are quite dispersed. Um, they have not really an idea how to actually approach this kind of power shift. And then again, of course, regional actors such as uh, Russia, uh, Turkey, uh, even China has a military presence, uh, um, Japan and Gulf states. Yeah have already enhanced uh, their military footprint and I okay. suppose that this trend is going to increase. So do you see a need based on your uh, on your research and on your actually on your analysis and assessments, do you see uh, actually a need for the European powers to also step in uh, to the eastern coast of Africa in yes, order yeah. to prepare for this power shift? In reality, it is about the security security of their European uh, yeah. trade, right? It's about mm -hmm. securing the maritime routes. It's about securing the global mm -hmm. choke points that actually uh, are of great importance for uh, mm -hmm. for the European connectivities. Or maybe right. I'm wrong on that. So, what is your take? Well not at all, not at all. Uh, you know, we anticipated this uh, in a report I wrote called Turkey's String of Pearls. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of, just to say, uh, publications coming out in, in the summer and through the autumn 2021 on this exact topic. Because what you're talking about, I, I discussed that there's um, an overland corridor with rail connectivity all the way from the Mediterranean coast to Tanzania, to the Great Lakes. But you also have the sea connectivity and then multimodal. So you have, you know, the, the port which just opened in Somaliland. UAE just opened a massive uh, port, first phase development in Somaliland, breakaway uh, region of Somalia, independent country, which way you want to look at it, that Ethiopia is building a road, so it'll have its uh, sea access and navy. Then you have, of course, uh, I, I post these maps, you have um, the whole Red Sea Gulf of Aden corridor, which is also the western part of the Indian Ocean. So China just revived Mama, that's uh, the current president of uh, Tanzania, uh, the former president passed away. Uh, the former president uh, nixed China's $10 billion deal to build a port in Tanzania uh, because he was upset about the terms that I felt weren't favorable to Tanzania. Uh, but he was succeeded by a new leader, and she has revived this. So China will build uh, ports. Um, Kenya is building ports and connectivity. Uh, Europe is absent. The U.S. is there. Uh, the U.K. is there. Um, you know, then Somalia. Uh, Turkey has built, uh, you know, its base there. Uh, Sudan, uh, Turkey, as we, we know, Turkey lost the port. Sudan, uh, Russia is building a port. Um, you know, when you think about Russia in eastern Libya and Russia in Sudan, you could start to see a bigger picture of uh, if you look at the maps of where Wagner is operating, you think of, of uh, then Russia in the Central African Republic. If you connect Eastern Libya, Central African Republic, and uh, Sudan, you have a nice triangle there, strategic triangle. Um, you know, this has to do with the delivery deficit. Um, 
a European delivery deficit and a really inept approach to security because again if if Europe worked with security with win-win economic partnerships there would be would be no uh, no question um, so this is where you know the security approach in the Sahel is a disaster uh, if you follow um, jihadi movements closely you would know that there was an Islamic something like the Islamic State uh, of uh, Iraq and Syria in what in the Sahel uh, you know northern Mali before it was created um, in Iraq and Syria right because there are organic connections if you know jihadi movements that uh, GSPC uh, was was involved in this and then its successor was al-qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb but these ideas they all these people were mentored by Zarqawi in Afghanistan and they wanted to do the same thing and everything that Isis did you know was tried in uh, parts of the Sahel and Algeria starting in the 90s you look at GIA even in Algeria so this is an old story so Operacion Serval kicked out these jihadists that's why the isis in west africa didn't emerge but what has happened since 2013 in operacion serval it's eight years and now the situation is worse than it is and france has pulled up stakes because the answer is not just security the answer is good governance and 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 economic opportunity, jobs, uh, functioning roads, systems, uh, transparency. You know, if if wherever good governance recedes, that's the opportunity for jihadists. I mean, look at look at. Uh, uh, I mean, a country like Nigeria, blessed with such resources. Yes, it has its history and all this, but it is corruption. An inept government plays a a, a big role. Governance. Uh, you could say that's why is that but what are the partners doing um you know so this is where europe really needs to think comprehensively turkey i'll give you an example turkey is very good at blending soft power and hard power uh to his credit president erdogan was the first non-african leader to visit somalia after the civil war in the famine 2011 the only leader to go and Turkey blended genuine humanitarian aid uh, with then what became um, hard power they have uh, the largest base outside of Anatolia in Somalia but they're talking now about building a space center there to launch satellites and rockets um, now you have in Libya then uh, Turkey signed an agreement with Niger for military training. Um, so Turkey um, does, a, does a very good job that way. And I think Europe needs to understand that it, it's not security. Uh, uh, it, it means creating economies that are on a win-win basis that better people's lives that people actually see an improvement to their lives nothing is improved and that's why you know the sahel is and and even west africa we just had this meeting in rome of the foreign ministers of the anti-isis coalition and you know i is 
WAP, ISIS, West Africa, Aya Islamic State, West African province, is growing in strength. You also have uh, in Central African, right, DR Congo, and then Mozambique. Uh, and so when you think about the east coast of Africa, think about Somalia, Ashabab, that just did another attack yesterday and the day before, the day before, and then Mozambique which is a tremendous insurgency. So uh, so right there, a country that needs a lot of help is Kenya, Tanzania could also. But I don't really see Europe thinking clearly and thinking well. And so the, I think one of the first things to act well is you need to think well. You need to be informed, have vision, and have leadership. Well, I cannot but agree, of course, and yet I have to ask one question from the chat, which is uh, also related to, the, to Europe. And I have also a final question related to the American role. What is your anticipation about the future role of United States uh, in this particular um, realm in the Mediterranean and in North Africa? But um, the question coming from the chat is actually uh, related to also to the future and it asks uh, so the guest asks are there any uh, actors parties politicians or whatsoever actors take also states um, into European Union who actually understand what win-win situation uh, means in a nutshell and if not if you haven't experienced that case what would be in your personal view a win-win situation for Europe, how to approach this highly complex and volatile spaces in the best manner. So that's, that, that, that would mean your personal recommendation, of course. Right. Well, you know, Morocco, as I say, is, uh, has lessons and a success story. Um, now, countries like France, Spain, in Morocco particularly, um, uh, you know, have a historical baggage, but that can be overcome. Now, Macron is the first post-colonial president, but has been, in my opinion, somewhat tone deaf in this approach uh, and resetting Europe, even though uh, and Africa relations. Uh, Germany, you know, which just apologized, and Namibia has a, a smaller uh, history, not totally. Um, but I think these countries um, need that uh, creating jobs and value-added production is what will make the difference. Um, not that, you know, when you build something in a country, every hammer and nail has to come from China. No, you need to create jobs. Uh, you need to, and this is where Turkey, if Turkey acts like China, it will also lose because if it creates a kind of extended neo-mercantilism, why does that uh, then and everything has to come from a Turkish company and other countries are excluded? That will mean less jobs and options for Africans. So, I mean, Morocco's production is successful because there are 200 companies like Lear, a company most people never heard of, except it's number 157 on the Fortune 500 list. It creates uh, air conditioning systems, seating systems, electrical systems for cars. It has 11 production sites in Morocco, just to service Renault. 
So it's not Renault, and it's not just PS. It, it's Lear, uh, employing lots of Moroccans. That that's a win-win. That's what Europe has to do. Um, there are countries that could step in. Poland doesn't have a historical baggage. Uh, Germany uh, it can. You know, Germany is helping, doing amazing things with Greece. Uh, a German company is building electric vehicles in Greece with financing from the Netherlands. Uh, why can't they build part of those components? Now, I would say in Egypt, but why don't they build them in Libya? Why don't they build them, you know, on the further? Sudan needs help. Greece has this interest in this corridor. Uh, why don't you create multilateral partnerships? Let the UAE help be a, a, a minority partner in that. Uh, but that, that's thinking creatively. Uh, that's all in line with climate solutions that that Europe wants. Um, I think Europe needs to be enterprising. Europe needs to think about production. One of the things Europe doesn't think about a lot is production. It thinks about assets. Europeans think they're rich because they have assets. Countries are rich because they have output. Now, and that's why African countries need help creating output. Uh, that helps employ people. And then you by putting this in a win-win value chain, uh, I, I'm going to, with the European Council on Foreign Affairs, I'm going to publish a report on this very idea that will be out in September. So maybe we can uh, revisit it. And I'm sure uh, many, many things published through AIAS, you know, have pointed to this. Um, so uh, I don't think it takes much. We know in our personal lives what a win-win situation looks like. We also know how it feels when we're not in a win-win situation where somebody's taking advantage of us or we feel helpless or we feel we know power it's a very yucky feeling well imagine that on a on a national level and imagine what a difference it would make if on a on a national level things were were changed and it doesn't take much it just means acting smartly and acting strategically on a strategic scale but smartly and it can be done uh, there, there. I point to the Morocco example. I can point to other examples, also other examples in other parts of the world. Um, you know, uh, so all I say for young people, if you're watching this and want to learn about IR, do an internship at AIES, and um, you know, get a good geopolitical education because uh, we're really dependent on the next generation. Um, which is highly apolitical, highly geopolitical generation because they grew up at least when it comes to, of course, the generations, the younger generations living in the West, they grew up actually post-Soviet Union collapse, uh, post-German uh, unification collapse. They've been actually witnessing only peaceful um, or extensively peaceful uh, situation uh, in the direct vicinity or in their country, so they not they are not really aware of uh, actually the opposite of what right. they are living through. You know, when I, I used to live in the United States, and people had a bumper sticker called "What if they had a war and nobody came?" from the Bertolt Brecht play, but that was only half the quote. He said, "If what if they had a war and nobody came? He said, then the war would come to you. So you can't hide from these effects. 
Europe's uh, boundary is not the southern is the Europe's southern coast on the Mediterranean. I, I, you, it used to be the Sahara Desert. It's somewhere the 19th parallel. I've, I've written about this and talked about it. Um, uh, so we're all interconnected. Uh, and the question is, what are the terms going to be? And who is going to be shaping those terms? I mean, people object to Turkey. Turkey is going to be an interregional power no matter what. It's just a matter of the terms that Turkey chooses. Is Turkey going to choose an inviting win-win way? Or are they going to come with a narrative that feels exclusive and oppressive to certain groups? But I would say every country faces that choice. What are the terms China is offering? Uh, what are the terms Europe is offering? Um, and the U.S. Um, you know, uh, ironically, George W. Bush had the best Africa policy. Uh, a lot of what we've seen um, in the Mediterranean has to do with the retreat of the United States. Um, and, you know, we've heard a lot about the pivot to Asia. Well, um, you know, Asia, um, again, the U.S. needs to be looking at Africa. Uh, I have a lot to say about East Africa as part of the Indian Ocean system, which I'll be writing about. Um, but this is where the transatlantic partnership needs to uh, work. And i take a case like Kenya, which I'm writing about, the transatlantic partnership in Kenya. Kenya has Mozambique jihadism to the south. Kenya has Al-Shabaab to the north. Uh, it is the third, you know, strongest economy in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you know, there's a great place to make a difference. It's still got probably one of the most free presses. Uh, and I, that would be a great place to make a difference. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you could pick a lot of countries. A lot of countries are in need. Um, but again, the answer is production, value added, win-win. Uh, and, uh, you know, and if nobody does it, then, you know, Africans and other people are going to suffer. And we're just going to have, um, you know, what we have now. But there are answers. There are ways out. There are ways to a better world. And, and cooperation and prosperity that benefits more people than it does now. And I think this is a great way how to end this conversation with a grain of hope instead of a grain of pessimism. And I certainly yes. reserve uh, myself the uh, opportunity to invite you once again, Professor Tan Hum, uh, to discuss uh, the upcoming uh, publications of yours, uh, probably in the second half of the year. And I very much hope that uh, um, our political decision makers on that side of the Atlantic, but of course together with other like-minded partners, will elaborate on some of these ideas uh, for the future and will seek this win-win uh, approaches uh, in uh, their geopolitical and geoeconomic portfolio. Thank you very much for being with us, for staying well, so long. Thank, thank you, Valina. You are a fantastic hostess uh, with excellent questions and excellent listening. And the world could use a lot more listening. Um, so I thank you for being such a great hostess and for uh, I congratulate you on the success 
of your digital talks and it would be my pleasure to come back whenever you invite me and in the meantime for our audience and for those who will be listening post uh, live stream you can find professor uh tang hum on uh, social media he is uh, very active on twitter um at michael tang hum you can find his publications partially on the web page of the AAS, but you can also find all of his uh, publications uh, uh, on, on the social media. So he's also uh, publishing for various um, European and American and international uh, think tanks and institutes. So uh, feel free to uh, contact him also on social media if you want to explore more about his research and his uh, his publications thank you very much professor tanghum and 